Lowdown. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again to Nonprofit Lowdown with me, Rhea Wong, your host, and my very special friend, Rasan Harris, or shall we call you Dr. Harris? Of course. Thank you. Welcome to the pod. So, Rasan, for those of us who are unaware of your legacy, can you please share your illustrious career? I feel like I could have done it, but I was like, you know what? Let the man talk about his work. Thank you so much. It is such an honor to be here. I want to first and foremost say that I do not feel like I have a legacy. I feel like I stand on the shoulders of so many people who came before me. Thank you for putting in the doctor because I got a PhD and my mother always wants to make sure that folks know that her son got a PhD. But really quickly, <laughs> I am a very fortunate up from enslaved people, young black man that was born in central New Jersey, but had roots that came from the Middle Passage over from Africa through Charleston, up from the South where my grandparents moved to Harlem. My parents ended up becoming working class, like high school students in Long Island. When they got married, they ended up in Central Jersey, had me. And then I decided after my career that I wanted to come back to Harlem, where I think all the magic is happening. And I think I'm grounded in my heritage and that heritage of being a descendant of formerly enslaved people. But having the drive to be able to kind of go after the American dream is something that's been really important to me. So Graduated from Princeton in 95 with a biology degree, went into the Peace Corps to Uruguay and Sudamerica and did environmental education, came back to New York City as a public school teacher, then a nonprofit executive that I've been executive director of Computer Technology Center, moved over to the Atlantic Philanthropies, and I wanted to stop there for a big moment. $4 billion endowment. They wanted to give all the money away. And I was there at that moment where they were announcing it and going public. So I was a philanthropist and gave money away for seven and a half years there. Then got an opportunity to get my PhD and go to grad school all along the way. And then made a turn as executive director of Emerging Practitioners in Philanthropy. That's a mouthful. Then the Emma Bowen Foundation that did diversity and inclusion within media companies. And then lastly, I have the great fortune to be the CEO of Citizens Committee for New York City. And we're here to make sure that New York City stays and that it doesn't go anywhere because of individual leadership that comes from the grassroots that make sure that all New Yorkers can participate in what New York can be, especially in the midst of these twin pandemics that we're facing right now. So that's so powerful. I got chills. So I am, as you know, not a native New Yorker, but I have now claimed and adopted my New York as my spiritual home. But what is it that you love about New York City? I love that New York, it's almost an idea. And it's going to sound a little cheesy, but it's an idea like America is. It's an idea that democracy is. It's like this place where all these different people from all these different backgrounds and persuasions decide to live all on top of each other and make this thing go. And there's culture and there's art and there's movement and there's money and there's poverty and there's like spirituality and there's atheism and there's everything in between. And somehow the city works because it kind of beckons people to come to it because they want to be in the energy and they want to prove that they can make it there. And particularly for me, and I alluded to this before, as a Black person that's super duper unapologetically Black, and the whole George Floyd moment has kind of made that come to the fore even in my professional life. 
but Harlem as a symbol of like black excellence and what is possible. I think of Langston Hughes and County Cullen and think about James Baldwin. That's all New York City. And actually, when I was growing up, we used to do Thanksgivings in Harlem at Aunt Connie's, my mother Aunt Connie's house on 145th Street and Convent Avenue. And just being in that vibe and being in that energy meant so much to me. It reminded me who I was, even though I was growing up a suburban kid in central New Jersey. So New York is Harlem. New York is identity. New York is being able to grind it out to be able to be successful and like one of the most competitive and interesting and eclectic places in the world. Yeah, I totally agree. As a native San Franciscan, I always say I was actually a born New Yorker. My whole life in San Francisco, everyone's like, God, you got to chill out. Then I came to New York, I was like, oh my God, these are my people. (laughs) No, but it could be love-hate because like a little bit of the tyranny of the city can like intimidate folks and make them feel connected to community. I have the good fortune, like my wife and I have lived in the same spot since 2002 And we're really part of a community. So Mm -hmm. you know the different supers on the block. Some of the young men, I knew them when they were little kids. I've seen babies grow up and go to college. And you walk down the block and you're not anonymous. And you get the flows and the ebbs and flows and things that are annoying, like double parking and alternate side of the street. And then sometimes loud music in the middle of the night. But you also appreciate the block association party that happens every August or the community garden that Harlem Grown opened up like right across the street from us. So it's all of that and it's community and it's so New York. Yeah. I never really understood the significance of a neighborhood until I moved to New York City. And I was like, oh, that's what they were talking about. Because in San Francisco, it's a bit of a different thing. So as I'm going to call you a lifelong New Yorker, even though you were technically raised in Jersey, but I know spiritually a New Yorker like myself. Absolutely. Um, And as a Black man, I'm just wondering, what are the big questions that you think that we all in the social sector and as New Yorkers should be asking ourselves in this moment as we are facing these twin pandemics and a historic election in a couple of days? So I think we should definitely reckon with a mistake that we made. And it was an honest mistake. I get it. Because folks in general don't like being, number one, confused, and number two, impolite. So in that space, we said, we need to be colorblind. I don't see your difference. You're exactly like me. And so therefore, I embrace you and I don't see color or I don't see gender. And I think at this moment, that fear uh, of messing up, that little bit of shame and not being open to trying something new allowed us to gloss over a lot of really glaring disparities. It allowed us to have certain things happen to groups of people, in particular Black people, as they interact with law enforcement or they're not getting jobs or they're having housing discrimination. For folks to think about that being an individual one-off thing and not recognizing their systems and forces and things that impact who we are today that happened way back. And it's not necessarily any of our current fault, but it's all of our responsibility to do better. So in this moment, showing up in a room of nonprofit or philanthropic leaders that if there are only a couple of folks that have more melanin in their skin than their dark skin, that should bother us. And we should ask the question why, and we should figure out how to be more intentional to call people in and talk about our journeys as opposed to saying, we're just good people and I just don't know why and we just can't do anything about it. 
it's not okay to be a bystander anymore. Like we are all starring in this movie and like how it ends really depends on like how we act and whether we act or don't act. Bring up a good point about philanthropy because I've often thought that philanthropy is sort of like the last bastion of like white supremacy. I mean, when we look at the people who hold the money, who make decisions about the money, who are the ones reading the grant reports and so on, it tends to be very lily white. And so I'm just wondering, as someone coming, you know, sitting on the social sector side, not necessarily on the foundation philanthropic side, what can we really do to help affect the change? Because at the end of the day, I mean, I know there's like a lot of hand-wringing that's been happening in the last couple of months. And I don't know that that hand-wringing is really leading to real change happening. I'm so thankful for my time at the Atlantic Philanthropies because there are two people. One was the CEO at the time. The other person was the senior vice president. The CEO would always let us know Real change happens from doing one of two things. Either you are getting legislation passed and influencing policy because making a ban on smoking cigarettes indoors or making everyone wear seatbelt can save hundreds, thousands, millions of lives. And that affects trillions of dollars in market and what's going on. So policy plays are important. And also the second thing is, how do you change hearts and minds? How do you influence culture? So even if you don't have a policy that's on the books, if folks feel a little bit of shame if they were to light up a cigarette when they're not supposed to, like folks really incorporate in who they are that certain things aren't healthy and that's not who we are. And so therefore, they go into a different direction that appeals to better angels and hopefully has better outcomes that again affects millions of lives or trillions of dollars in markets. And so changing policy or changing hearts and minds, I think is the way you get at philanthropy in a way that really works and moves things. And so one-offs and performative acts are not systems change. And I'm going to be controversial a little bit on purpose. So I love Thanksgiving. I think turkey giveouts on Thanksgiving days are fantastic. But is that a systems change type of a solution? No. Is it great because people get to eat for a night? Yes. Will it make people who are engaged in an act of love feel good about themselves? Absolutely. But if we really want to change the reality on the ground for people, we need to figure out why didn't they have a turkey available to them that night? And like, why won't they have a turkey available to them a week from now, a month from now for the rest of the year? And so what do we need to do to change those conditions on the ground to make turkeys available every night of the week? And if you think about problems from that lens and from discrimination, from inclusion, from who is a part of your team, why isn't this room looking the way it wants to? Why did this ad that I didn't want to be offensive come out to be offensive and just figure out what the systems approach, then you can make a difference. And then this SVP, he told me, we only have 400 weeks to give out $4 billion as we're spending down the endowment. And it was kind of let you know that system change takes a long time and you have to have a certain urgency because even if you have $4 billion and 400 weeks to give it away, that's not necessarily enough to make sure that everyone has access to healthcare or to make sure that the LGBT community has rights. And I think more philanthropy needs to think about systems and recognize what you do, which might be a nice one-off. But if you're interested in true change, what are you doing to impact systems and creating spaces so that can get done? 
So it feels like a both and, right? Because to your point, systems change takes kind of a long time. And when we have hungry people today or homeless people today or kids who aren't getting proper education today, that feels like where a lot of social sector agencies can also fill the void. For sure. And I think it's both and. So I love our social sector organizations. They said the change policy nonprofits have a lot of latitude to educate folks. You're not like advocating for an issue or a particular candidate on the ballot. You're not electioneering, but there's so much that nonprofits can do to like help push discourse for certain issues so that they become policies that positively impact folks. So if you're giving out turkeys as social service, which we should do because people should feel special at this time of year, you also want to make sure that you're talking about are people voting? Like, what are the jobs that are in the area? Why aren't jobs coming to this particular area? What are some of the fundamentals and the structural pieces about a given community that are like keeping it locked out of opportunity? And so I think you need to have two minds act now, but also be strategic and play out how each step and what you're doing is going to get you to your goal. And goals can change and it's dynamic, but you have to be within that rigor and within that process constantly, because ultimately nonprofits should be working themselves out of existence. The reason why I was founded should not necessarily, and that problem should hopefully is going away. And hopefully if I'm ultimately successful, my nonprofit's not needed anymore because you've solved the problem and there's an infrastructure to make sure the solution's in place for a very long time. It's an interesting point because I actually was talking to one of my coaching clients yesterday about this very issue because it was like, how do you educate your donors in a way that is ethical, but also is impactful, right? Because if you're like bludgeoning people over the head, they're maybe not listening. And my take on it, and I'd love to know your perspective is I was like, I think that's important, but I think what the first step is actually about your staff and your board and making sure that they are fully aligned and clear about who you are, what you are, what you stand for, and the change that you want to see. And I feel like people need to do that work closer to home before they can start to push out to the larger community. Would you agree with that? Amen. Ashe. All that. (laughs) Charity starts at home. Like You got to get your house in order before you go out and help everybody else. You know, another cliche, when the oxygen mask drops on the airplane, you got to put it on yourself before you're helping other folks. And Mm -hmm. if you're messy and you're going out trying to help people, then you're not going to help them. You're going to probably make your mess go on them too. So missions need to be aligned. Boards need to align themselves with staff. Critical conversations need to happen. And it's a process. And so that can be wonky. Set up metrics. That's like kind of nerdy. But you can have a basis for a conversation if you set up a process. Mm-hmm. And it's, the process is inspired by passion and purpose, but like those processes matter. And if you're just going to, again, like if you're going to be blind to like difference and blind to kind of tension, organizations can be polite, but they can be ineffective forever because they're being polite. And I think if you create transparency, room for communication, then people have the opportunity to really engage in a way that has impact. So I have an interesting question for you. I was talking with a woman yesterday who does recruitment for nonprofits. And in specific, she does a lot of development searches for people in the Bay Area. Um, and she herself is a white woman, but she and she was like, look, I should not be leading this work. I mean, she's very you know, clear on that. And she said something 
that I'm so rattling around in my mind. To be fair, she didn't say it. She was, this is someone else who said it. And that person said, you know what? We should only be hiring white people to do major donor work so that they can talk to white people and then give the money to communities of color because the most harm that comes for fundraisers of color is when they have to interface with major gift people who are predominantly white. And my first knee-jerk reaction was like, whoa, I don't know about that. But I think it's an interesting idea. So I'd be curious, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, that's such a rich question. There's so much in that. (laughs) So, oh, layers. There are levels to this, right? So on one level, hello, wealth disparities. Let people of color and women get access to wealth and you will see how the world changes. So we need to have a conversation about where wealth resides, where wealth has been denied, and figure out about wealth disparities because if we don't deal with wealth disparities, then that really maps very well onto power disparities and then that maps onto decision-making and that maps onto who's at the decision-making table. So one side of me says... You definitely need people of color talking to wealthy folks because they need to be able to talk about wealth. They need to be feel comfortable around wealth. They need to be at wealth tables. And so keeping people of color away from white wealth, black wealth, Asian wealth, Latin American wealth, that's just not the right thing. And if you think about wealth on a global stage, you can also recognize there's like wealth that are in all different kinds of shades and different colors of the rainbow. But the flip side is... It is taxing for a person of color to basically be the educator and the implementer and the spiritual guide for white people in moments in talking about change and need, and especially in moments when there are instances of Black violence or Black denigration. Having to be the one black person in a room, if you're a black woman in a room where George Floyd goes down and then you have 50 white colleagues and they're all looking at you to have like the leadership, like that's just not a great place to be. And so we do need white allies and we need white co-conspirators talking to each other about these issues, working out the messiness, working out the language and the phraseology and saying the stuff that they're thinking, but it's kind of afraid of what's going to sound like when it comes out of their mouth. And then have it not necessarily impose harm on the people of color who might be impacted by it. So I think it's a both and. We need white allies that are going to do work and help move wealth and be great co-conspirators. But then we also need to make sure that we don't say, oh, let white wealth take care of this. We have this table covered and like we'll, we'll let you, you know, folks of color get in here once we have it all sorted out. Yeah, I got to say, I have to do another episode on this one, but being a woman of color, raising money, like there's a whole other element to like, I mean, every female fundraiser I know has some kind of me too story, right? So when you add gender disparities, race, money, power, it's very messy and the potential for harm is great. I do think that like we need to acknowledge that and we also need to acknowledge how money was created and the culture in which money was created. And so like how that can perpetuate harm as folks try to interact with those realms and those spheres. So if a woman's going into a very patriarchal, male-dominated space, then you can almost identify upfront like what are the potential pitfalls and 
I feel really empathetic and want to be protective of folks that need to go into these spaces that weren't created for them, but they are compelled to interact with them to get access to power. And, and what happens when they interact and try to use it for different purposes that might be create different than the way that the wealth was created in the first place. So I know your body of work. I mean, you've been in the philanthropy and nonprofit space basically your whole career. And I'm wondering, what do you think philanthropy could look like if we're decentering whiteness, right? So I've been thinking a lot about what does it mean to raise money and to be engaged in fundraising and philanthropy without putting whiteness and privilege at the center of it. And in particular, I was reminded someone was talking about like this video that they did and it was awful. It was just like poverty porn at its worst. It's like mm-hmm. white savior stuff. And so I think that's kind of the only model that a lot of fundraisers have seen. And so it's hard to imagine like what could it look like for that to be different and to raise money and still feel like we don't have to feed into this meme of like the white savior and white privilege? Yeah, that's a big question. I think one of the things is folks need the opportunity to really see themselves, know themselves, and understand how how they show up impacts the, the larger environment. So first and foremost, I think great philanthropy starts with humility and like knowledge of self and then some kind of indication or trying to get some read of like how you impact the environment that you're going into. And then if folks recognize how they're showing up and how they impact the process, they have a better sense to gauge of when they need to step up or when they need to step back. And then that can allow for the second part, which I think is at the foundation of like true philanthropy and a great democracy is allowing everyone to have an equal vote and allowing these processes that everybody can be at the table. Because a lot of philanthropy that centers wealth added and the folks who own it and positionally, whether they created themselves or they inherited it or they got invited to it, just because the way we're segregated, a lot of people of color, a lot of women aren't necessarily at the pinnacle of sitting on those piles of cash. So to change the dynamic, you need to recognize the power imbalances, create some kind of participatory process that ideas can come out. And it's not necessarily the idea of democracy where majority always wins. There can be also tyranny of the majority too. So you got to also, I think, have different processes that allow the minority opinion to at least have some voice and have some visibility so it can be acted on too. And so a democratic philanthropy is something that decentralized whiteness, philanthropy that recognized power imbalance, philanthropy that is really like kind of self-aware, self-promoting is I think what would get us to a better place. Because imagine New York City where like the richest and the poorest all are kind of together reimagining what New York City is going to look like post-COVID and using all the lessons and all the realities. I think that could make a utopia. So I'm going to switch tacks a little bit because I know your dissertation was about Black philanthropy. So I'm just really curious about like some key takeaways here because I also think, I also recruit myself, I, you know, the stereotype of people with money are usually older, rich, white folks. And yet I think there's such a rich history of philanthropy in this country by all kinds of people, a rich history of volunteerism. Certainly when you look at churches and other faith-based organizations, you see a rich history of philanthropy. So I'm just wondering, talk to me about what kind of takeaways you got from the dissertation. So I wanted to look at philanthropy, particularly in a Black community and 
through a comparison lens, because I guess when you're doing research to a certain extent, you want to see how phenomenon exists in comparison to what else is going on in the world. And you know, there is a notion sometimes that if you made it in any culture, but definitely as a person of color, that sometimes you forgot where you came from. And so I wanted to explore if Black people that are higher socioeconomic status, so whether if they're higher in wealth or higher in income, because wealth and income are two different things, and then higher in education, how did their giving compare to their Black colleagues that weren't as high socioeconomic status? And also how they compare to their white colleagues in the other space. And the punchline is socioeconomic status matters. If you had more, and this is based off a data set that I have, so you can only talk about what's in front of you. And it was whether folks gave or didn't give to different types of nonprofit organizations. Most of those are 501c3. If you had a higher socioeconomic status and if you're white or you're black, you're more likely to give, you're less likely to give if you had less of that, whether you're white or black. In short, black folks that were richer and better off acted like white folks did. But I got a chance that there was one question that was about, you know, have you supported a family member or friend? And that's where I saw a difference, that the informal philanthropy, the black respondents were more likely than their white peers that were at the same level to have given to a brother, a sister, a mother, a father, a grandparent, or a family friend. And that shows potential for more research about Black folks who kind of make it are helping to bankroll the rest of their community because there's not the community wealth for others to do well. Then that limits you know, the individuals, how far they go, because they have other obligations that are like sapping their resources. And then that has implications for how folks show up politically, how they show up even for themselves and even for their well-being and love to ask more questions about that. And then also, as you said, when I was doing my literature review, there's cultures of giving in the Black church and like how the civil rights movement was funded. A lot of it was just from like the philanthropy that comes from folks going to church and putting money in a collection plate every Sunday. Um, there are immigrant communities that have things such as susus where different families all get together and they put money in a pot once a week and every month one family gets to take the whole pot and do what they need to with it and know there's going to come around to the other families as they're doing it. There are immigrant families that put investment so that People can start businesses or they have folks coming over. And that's all kinds of philanthropy that isn't necessarily organized or 501c3, but has impacts on communities and their trajectories. And the last thing, talking about the nonprofit industrial complex, one of my questions was, well, do high SES people give because the nonprofits target them? It's not a matter of capacity, but it's even a matter of being visible and seen. So there were more questions than there were answers, but I love being able to do that. Yeah. Was there any data that suggested, because I mean, what we say in fundraising is like the number one indicator of whether people give is if you ask them. And so a lot of times I'll talk to folks that I'm working with or other folks in the field and they'll make assumptions about people and their ability to give. And so they won't ask. So they'll, they'll not ask their volunteers or they may not ask the people that they're serving. And I always believe that everyone should be given the opportunity to give, even if it's a dollar, even if it's $5. Like, I think there's something about being able to show where your values are. So I'm just curious, is it because they were asked more? So, so the why I couldn't know, because this is one of those quantitative dissertations. So literally there was a survey, they asked them certain questions so I can only analyze the data that was in front of me. But in the literature review, there are definitely different studies that spoke to certain people didn't give to certain causes because they weren't asked. And that makes a huge difference. 
Another thing that's interesting to that that can be explored and should be explored is the trust of institutions. And there are a lot of studies about trust of institutions, but certain communities don't trust certain institutions because they don't think that they have a voice in them or they don't think they're doing what they're supposed to do. And as strong the line to current politics, not with a capital P, but I guess lowercase p, folks who think of conspiracy theories or folks that think of like things not being there for them and not trusting has a lot to do with like how institutions have historically showed up for certain communities, but then also has to do with access to good information and truthful, verifiable access to news and information and I think there's something to be said about how institutions are treating people and how they're communicating to different folks. And it goes back to if you you don't have a relationship with people, then people aren't going to show up for you. Oh, that is so true. At the end of the day, I think the more complicated I think the world is, it also just becomes more simple, which is it's about relationships. Absolutely. (laughs) I mean, so... Another PhD thing that I did, you know, just understanding risk. And if you read things like Malcolm Gladwell, they talk about like blink and like instincts. And it actually, on one level, what happens in our subconscious is evolutionary and like how you just survive. If you learn, you see your friend get eaten by a saber-toothed tiger, you know, if you see something that looks like a saber-toothed tiger, you stay inside the cave. <laughs> so that's how you protect yourself. That's like, you know, that's how bunnies stay safe in the streets. But if we have negative narratives that reinforce wrong stereotypes, it makes the black man or a black woman a saber-toothed tiger when we're not. And people make these bad assumptions. So that's on one level. And then the other thing is decrease risk if you have a relationship with somebody. Because if you know somebody and you lend them $5 and they have to see you every week, they're like, oh man, I owe them $5. <laughs> and, and so there's something that kind of is in the contract that makes it more likely that you're going to get money back from them. But if you don't have a relationship, you're not going to just lend $5 to a stranger if you're more risk averse because you're worried about getting that money back. And I think those are the fundamentals that are underneath a lot of the dynamics that we have in society that we don't recognize that express themselves as like institutional racism or ways that places become monoliths. And we can change that if we understand like the science behind it or how we got there to try to be better and be different. That kind of brings us back full circle to the notion of New York City, because I think you're right in many ways that New York City is an idea. And like what's wonderful about New York City is I can walk down the street and see lots of different people who don't look like me and have relationships with lots of people who don't look like me. And I also think that sometimes the proximity sort of breeds hostility as well, because in some ways, like the neighborhoods of New York are incredibly segregated. So I guess I'm just wondering, like, can this go both ways, right? It completely goes both ways. Like familiarity breeds contempt. Like you hate those that you spend the most time with. Oh, COVID has showed us this, my friend. (laughs) (laughs) And also you can get really negative stereotypes because you think you have a relationship with somebody because you see them. But if you haven't had a conversation with them, you don't know the first thing about them. So that is always a danger. One of the things I love about Harlem in the pre-COVID days, there was a pickup soccer game that was at the Harlem YMCA. And you had folks of all different backgrounds from all different countries, African immigrants. There's these two twins that came from Portugal that were students at City College over there. You know, they were like, old Latino fathers and young little black kids are just being exposed to soccer for the first time and just run-of-the-mill random white guys running around and women. 
and we all played and we all got to know each other and we had a proximity that also kind of informed the way we felt about each other because someone called a foul or was that a goal or not a goal and arguing and working it out, you know, there are moments of magic that are possible that can be completely highly integrated and diverse and folks can show up with their full selves and like really enjoy it in New York City. Or we can have a completely gilded, segregated experience. And the question is always, who do I want to be and where am I going to put my effort to show up? Mm, So powerful. So as we close out, any big topics that we haven't covered that you're passionate about, you feel like we need to talk about before we sign off? So really quickly, want to make sure there's so many talented people out there in the world and they might not look like you and you might not even identify them because they're not visible to you. So what I ask for folks to do that are looking for talent, that are looking for leaders, that are looking for new ideas, to look around and figure out who's not in the room and then try to seek them out and get into those spaces. And so in this moment, post uh, the George Floyd's murder, you know, supporting CEOs of color, Black CEOs, supporting folks that are from different communities, like going hard, buy Black, buy from someone who's an undocumented immigrant, spread the wealth, and definitely try to be hyper-local and inclusive because you can create inclusive localities and inclusive neighborhoods. You can create these safe pods that have everything that they need culturally, intellectually, economically, spiritually. And and that's how I think New York City is going to come back. If we get hyper-local and we see each other as valuable and we create community. So figure out who's not in the room or figure out who's right next door who you're not talking to and give them a chance and be comfortable in engaging them in their full self and who they are. And it's okay. Make a couple of mistakes. As long as you let them know you're being intentional and earnest, uh, we can make it forward together. You know, when you say New York is coming back, do you see signs of that happening or do you think that we're in for another cliff? Because I think, especially when I look at the hospitality industry as just an example, like we all love New York because of the bars and the restaurants and the nightlife and the this and the theater and the, and it's possible that we're looking at a second wave coming in the fall. I mean, the New York Times just published it's the highest infection rate since this whole thing started. At the same time, though, I'm hopeful because we're also seeing a lot of corporations fall and corporations that have really been taking up the real estate of like your local mom and pop stores. So I guess I'm wondering from your perspective, are we on the path to recovery or are we in for a bumpy ride? I'm going to sound real old and black to you, but (laughs) I come from folks that toiled in fields and like lived in communities segregated and got up the next day anyway and not knowing when freedom was going to come or when equality was going to come. But they knew that they needed to get up because stuff needed to get done. Uh, They put a song on their heart and they just keep trudging through. So I don't know. I don't necessarily think that we're like over and that we've rounded a corner. We have not rounded a corner. Get out of here. What has happened is the mechanics of COVID putting us in a very precarious place because being outside keeps you safe. Droplets in non-ventilated places, they travel. And so when people are more likely to get colds and sneeze and we're going to be indoors with each other. So I do think that we're in for another spike. That said, I think if you open up spaces mentally and also in real estate 
that great ideas and great leaders will step forward. So my prediction is great folks that weren't going anywhere are going to get a little bit more shine. They're going to get a little bit more chance to do their thing. If they get sponsorship from some folks that are wealthy and powerful and from big companies, fantastic, because it will make recovery even faster. But even if they don't get that, it'd be a shame, but it doesn't matter because people are going to persist because they're going to get up every day. They're going to get a song in their heart and they're going to make it happen. So I do feel that New York City, no matter what, will persist. Like I'm not betting against New York City. It's going to take a long time, but we need to reimagine what type of work people are doing, where they're working, how they're working. I hope that we make sure that every neighborhood has what it needs so that folks don't have to travel across all these different neighborhoods to spread COVID or whatever, that you can get what you need within a 10 block radius, educate your children, work from home or have some local economy, get some spiritual feeding and get some healthcare. Those are the types of things that'll make sure that like pods of safety and pods of vibrancy pop up across the city and then in aggregate, New York City will thrive. That's a beautiful note to land on because you're right. There are no tougher people in this world than New Yorkers. Exactly. Rashawn, thank you so much. This is amazing. Or do you ever say like, trust me, I'm a doctor. (laughs) (laughs) No, seriously, no, I'm not licensed to practice like that. So I never say, trust me, I'm a doctor. (laughs) I've gotten the license to talk a lot because I've listened a lot. So I figure I'm going to talk a little bit. It was wonderful to spend time with you, Dr. Rasan Harris, everyone. And we'll be in touch. We'll make sure to put all your info in the show notes for folks who want to reach out and have a conversation with you. But thanks so much for all you do and for all you do for New York City. Thank you for shining light.